This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovic of Bloomberg Quick Take. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week. The weekend, it's here. It's week 45, though, working from home still for so many. We were at corporate headquarters for Bloomberg in New York City. A week with so much going on. A new U.S. president was sworn in and a week where U.S. virus cases topping 400,000, Tim, and counting. Wow, a grim milestone, Carol. And it certainly shows that front and center for the Biden administration on day one is the virus and the recovery. This is the main backdrop for this week's magazine, the year ahead issue, covering the major trends, disruptions, breakthrough products, innovations, and movements to watch for this year. I feel like there's so much to watch this year. We'll have a few highlights from the magazine and also from our daily radio show, including former Obama campaign consultant, Spencer Critchley. He's also the author of Patriots of Two Nations, Why Trump Was Inevitable and What Happens Next. You and I love this conversation. We do. I love talking to Spencer. And Carol, we're also gonna have the latest on COVID-19 vaccine vaccinations. They are not happening fast enough. There's still a lot of bureaucracy and red tape. A go-to voice on the front line, Surgical Solutions CEO Alyssa Rapp. All right, so all of that to come. We're going to begin with this week's cover story. Well, the cover story is really all about the year ahead, but kind of tying it together for us was our Peter Coy. He talked about more vaccinations, more stimulus, more sanity. He gave us kind of the guide to 2021. And Tim, I got to say, I love the tagline for this one. The economic outlook is starting to brighten, but the world, well, it still needs a shot in the arm. Yeah, I certainly need that shot mm-hmm. in the arm. We've got more on that with Bloomberg Businessweek economics editor Peter Coy and Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. We tried to be slightly lighthearted and go with this tabloid uh, look, which really just started with us asking a bunch of questions. And as we kept asking questions, I kept adding exclamation marks. I think the big debate on the staff is whether 2021 is the year of the exclamation mark or the year of the question mark. Um, Right now, it feels more like the latter, just tons of questions. And as we started um, asking those questions, though, we we did, I mean, it's the tabloid thing is fun, but we we took this very seriously and we tried to just pack it full of as much useful information as we can. That's where Peter came in with the intro, obviously. And, you know, I think the real takeaway, Peter, is you know, our economic outlook is basically um, wedded to the number of vaccinations that um, the U.S. is able uh, to do. And and that goes for the rest of the world as well. So what what does that outlook sort of look like um, from your reporting? If you look at the GDP forecasts for the world and and the U.S. and many other countries, they look pretty good. You would think, wow, nice. That's healthy growth. For example, for the world, uh, 5.1% 5.1% for the U.S., 3.5%. But you have to keep in mind that that's off a very low base. So what's happened is that 2020 was an awful year, and we're getting a, a, a rebound. So it looks good, but we're not even rebounding all the way back to the trajectory we were on. Uh, you know, it's, it's like, the I don't know, maybe I'm just the glasses half empty kind of guy, but I'm not super happy about this. Oh, come on. <laughs> Maybe you're just a realist, Peter. Yeah, yeah. that's it. <laughs> okay, well, is there any I mean, is there any good news? Did you find anything to be optimistic about in your reporting? No, I mean, the obvious thing is that the vaccines were developed far faster than, uh, you know, a lot of scientists have been expecting. That's a huge positive. It is taking a while to get them distributed. Um, but the U.S. is actually, even though it, if you're living in the U.S., it feels kind of slow, the U.S. has is, is done a higher percentage of its population getting vaccines than most other countries. And I do believe that we're going to get our act together eventually and that this will end up being um, the year 
when the tide really does turn on the vaccine. The second half is going to look better than the first half. So it also looks different elsewhere in the world, Peter. Um, and one place that it looks uh, completely different is, is China, which even right. though they haven't really done mass vaccinations yet, the economy it remains to, you know, it didn't skip a beat last year. Only, uh, you know, major economy that didn't have a contraction. And, right. you know, here here we are projecting that, you know, they, they will become the world's largest economy in just a couple more years. Um, what, what, from an economist standpoint, just how, how legit are those Chinese numbers? You know, you never know whether to trust any given year, but it's certainly true that, uh, relatively speaking, they did better than the rest of the world. I mean, that's just obvious, just walking around the streets of Beijing or Shanghai, that uh, people are going to restaurants, they're going to theaters, they're Kids are going to school just as normal. People are going to work just as normal. Traveling, um, that's just evidence that they've got the virus under control through, you know, blocking and tackling, doing the basics right. So they had, uh, as Joel said, positive growth last year, and they expected to have a strong growth this year. When you when you look um, in your intro, you had a couple other countries that that stood out to you. What are the other ones that, that you feel um, are going to you know, be, be ones that we'll continue to talk about this year? Well, the U.K. had a terrible 2020. They did much worse than the U.S. The U.S. probably had about a 3.6% decline in GDP. U.K., over 10% decline in GDP. Um, so uh, Boris Johnson has his hands full trying to fix that and now looking so far, good so far in 2021 with uh, more lockdowns to try to suppress the virus. Um, Germany uh, has done somewhat better. Germany has a bad habit of uh, exporting its way out of its problems, building up huge trade surpluses that other countries resent, and that looks like that's going to continue in 2021. If a company does have a good chance of, of succeeding in the new environment, it makes sense to keep it alive. If its business model is fundamentally flawed because of the changes caused by covid then maybe it's better to let it go. That piece, Tim, really laying out the top themes for the year and how we may see a recovery from a time like no other. As we've talked about so much, Carol, mm-hmm. the recovery inextricably linked to the vaccine rollout, totally. it cannot happen soon enough. That was, of course, Bloomberg Businessweek economics editor Peter Coy and Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. Coming up, the year ahead when it comes to politics and government, well, will the divisions continue to dominate? We'll check in with one Washington insider. He's also the author of Patriots of Two Nations, Why Trump Was Inevitable and What Happens Next. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Safe to say that one year ago this time, we really had no idea of what would come on the political front. Fast forward to this year, we've got a new president, a Democratic Congress by a slim margin, and an administration, Tim, with a year-ahead to-do list that's long and wide in a Washington that's still reeling from the Capitol riot at the start of the year. And you know, Carol, this is really the reason that we wanted to talk with Spencer Critchley. He's managing partner at the marketing agency Boots Road Group. He's also an award-winning journalist, a communications consultant who has worked for both of Barack Obama's presidential campaigns as well. He's a modern day renaissance man because he's also a digital media producer. He's worked with David Bowie, Moby, Santana, Britney Spears, a bunch of others. He's also author of Patriots of Two Nations, Why Trump Was Inevitable and What Happens Next. Top of mind for us, right, Tim, the inauguration and division in Washington. 
We have to have hope, I think, today. It's been so inspiring what's been going on, and I think that President Biden uh, has followed exactly the right course here. You know, when he's uh, talking about restoring the soul of America, I know uh, people have probably assumed that that was standard campaign rhetoric because politicians tend to talk in these, you know, sweeping historic terms to try to motivate voters in this grand mission of their campaign. But I am confident that Joe Biden means that from his heart. And I think what he's referring to is the set of core moral values that are at the heart of democracy and that make it possible. You know, we're a a civic nation, the first one in history to not have a state religion and not have an official ethnic identity defining us, but instead we're really defined by the idea of America as embodied in the Constitution. And those shared moral values are values like freedom and equality and the rule of law and democracy itself. And that's what Biden is talking about. It goes way beyond the partisan differences and the other differences that have divided us so much and for so long, and really calls on all of us to renew our support for democracy itself. So how does, if you were advising President Biden, if you're advising him right now, how does he bring a nation together that is so divided? I think that that's where he needs to start is appealing to people's hearts because as i you know as i say uh, in the title of my book the people who are divided consider themselves as patriots even if they hate the people on the other side of the divide and see the people on the other side as threats to the united states they see themselves as patriots and if you have a situation where two groups divided so deeply both see themselves as patriots the issue is they're seeing different nations. They're patriotic to different visions of what the nation is. And I think what Biden needs to do and will do is show people that, in fact, we're united by one nation that's defined by these values that we do all share. If we don't share these core values, in effect, our civic religion of equality, freedom, rule of law, etc., then we don't support democracy. So if you're going to be in the circle of democracy, you must share those values. And I think, you know, most people believe in those values and and want uh, to be appealed to on that level. And so if he does, I think that goes much farther than any particular policy position. All right, Spencer, don't hate me, but I'm going to, I think I said this last time you were on, because it was a line that in your, in your book that just stayed with me. And you said um, how you think uh, you understand what has happened here. And that is that this has been coming since the founding uh, of the country, America's two nations occupying the same land, but seeing everything very differently, even including truth itself. And what's interesting is we do look at this division. I think one of the things Tim and I have thought was really important and our reporters at Bloomberg News are, are writing on it is talking to those rioters, understanding why they did what they did. And I think we have forgotten Americans that we need to understand why they feel like they're not represented in this government or that they needed to overtake this government. Yes, uh, although there is a certain point at which everybody has a choice. And um, I think we make a mistake if we see everything in terms of ideas. I've been working hard, including with this book, to try to help people understand each other, especially people on my side of the divide, which is the democratic liberal side of the divide, to help them understand why good people would support President Trump, for example. Um, However, when you are offered the choice to storm the Capitol, to smash the windows, to attack police officers, to threaten the lives of elected officials, we don't need to understand that. At that point, um, you just need to be stopped, and you need to be held to account. And this also is part of really understanding and defending the moral values. That is not a partisan position. 
if we believe in democracy, you must not and cannot be allowed to do those sorts of things. So for the people, you know, think about it this way. We, th- we think about understanding, you know, what democracy is about and all this sort of stuff. But think about the developmentally disabled, for the intellectually disabled, for example. They are no morally worse than anybody else. It doesn't require advanced intelligence or high education to understand that it's wrong to destroy things and to hurt people. Mm. And the people who participated in that attack, that is what they did, and that is just wrong. Um, I think coming out of this, because things have gotten so bad, we're actually going to have to follow a truth and reconciliation process, as was followed mm. in post-apartheid South Africa, uh, post-World War II Germany, post-Troubles Northern Ireland. Uh, we, first of all, must establish, we must reestablish truth, uh, especially because autocrats always attack the truth uh, and attack history. History is the enemy of tyrants, and it's the friend of freedom. Right. Uh, so we must establish truth, and we must have accountability, and then we can work towards reconciliation. The first thing we have to do is reestablish this sense of shared values. I, I think that if we think too much at the tactical level, we won't get there, because we're kind of lost. Uh, our dispute really takes place over tactics and policy details and charges and countercharges, and, and it ends up uh, deepening the division and increasing the loss of trust. And when you're as divided as um, so many Americans are right now, the first thing to do is reestablish shared values to reestablish trust, because people really only listen to people that they trust. And if you've lost trust in each other, it doesn't really matter what you say, how valid it is. It's just not going to be heard or you know, given any, any weight with the lack of trust. And this is one reason why I think Joe Biden was quite possibly the best choice the Democrats could have come up with for this time in history, because it's such a strength of his. Um, I wrote a, a short piece about this at SpencerCritchley.com just called A Good Man, because aside from his other qualifications, and I think he's actually one of the most highly qualified on paper presidents in our history, um, perhaps his most important quality is he's a thoroughly good person, as everybody who's been around him for any length of time knows and will tell you. And leadership is not about what you can impose on people, ultimately, it's about what you can summon from them. Mm. And I think that we're already seeing, I, I don't think I'm dreaming, I think we're already starting to feel how different it's going to be when we have a leader who is summoning the best from us. It's always great to have Spencer Critchley join us. He is, again, the author of Patriots of Two Nations, Why Trump Was Inevitable, and What Happens Next, also managing partner for Boots Road Group. Got to say, one of my favorite conversations this week, Tim. Still ahead, Washington, we know the inauguration politics. As we said, top of mind this week, so too were those troubling COVID headlines. How one healthcare CEO is supporting frontline workers and healthcare systems. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. The year ahead will look a lot like 2020 unless Ugh, we get... Carol. Oh, sorry. <laughs> 2020 was a terrible year. I'm really sorry, but it's a reality. I mean, listen, we're getting out vaccines. We know that. But if you take a look at the headlines and still the obstacles, uh, it's pretty dark and dismal. Yeah, that's true. Uh, U.S. coronavirus deaths topped 400,000 this week. It is a staggering number. Each one of those people leaving behind a family, leaving behind friends, uh, follows on the heels of global deaths, Carol, hitting 2 million just about a week ago. And on the front lines of it all, Alyssa Rapp, who's CEO of the healthcare solutions company, Surgical Solutions. I am absolutely seeing more vaccine 
vaccine availability and our frontline healthcare workers in places like Houston and New York City are getting access to getting the vaccine, which is great. And I've known from personal anecdotes that family members 75 and up are also getting their first shot this week and next, which is across many states. However, there's still a lot of bureaucracy and red tape. And what we've seen even at a couple of our hospital sites is even if you're a credentialed employee or contractor, even if you have a vaccine appointment, now there's a third database that people are expected to be tracked in when their vaccines are given. And if any technical difficulties like we just had occur and a, and a database doesn't map from the employee contractor database to the separate vaccine tracking database, even if you have an appointment and are a bona fide employee or contractor, you can't always get the shot. And so there's mm. just a lot of bureaucracy and there's got to mm-hmm. be a streamlined way we continue to immunize or we will never achieve 100 million in 100 days. Oh, that's just disconcerting to hear. Are there places um, where your frontline staff are that are better than others? You know, I think that we've seen it be rolled out successfully in all places, and we've seen bureaucracy in all places. We have 300 uh, employees in nine states, so it's really a facility-by-facility or system-by-system question, to be fair. But I will say the places I am most optimistic about having a partner to our federal government and our our, our people, our American public right if we can partner with cvs walmart costco Mm -hmm. walgreens name that tune and go to places where people are used to getting flu shots where they're used to shopping on a regular basis leverage the military it's like you've read business week magazine Alyssa, because they (laughs) they have a story that's just specifically about that that maybe you know the success in terms of getting that vaccine rollout is contingent on relying on the big pharmacies but even your local pharmacy like they need to be the place to go Absolutely. I, I even read recently this week that the governor of Washington state is going to partner with Starbucks. I mean, anything we can do to leverage existing infrastructure, because when we create new infrastructure, even in healthcare facilities, let alone anywhere else, it's expensive, bureaucratic and cumbersome. Leverage what we have, keep things moving as quickly as possible and get it done. Herd immunity being obviously the goal here. Um, you know, it, it really raises the question, Alyssa, why we didn't see earlier on um, public-private partnerships when it comes to a widespread vaccine rollout um, to be discussed on a different day. But I, isn't I, that important? Like, <laughs> like, well, it's interesting that, forgive me, because I just want to jump in, because, yeah. you know, you talk about the bureaucracy and the logistical problems, and I know what maybe Kansas needs versus what New York needs is going to be different. But nonetheless, do you think those are quick fixes? And I don't say quick in that it's easy, but do you think that this new administration approaching it differently can get this quickly under control so that we are seeing the bureaucracy taken out of the systems and the logistical snafus, Alyssa, taken out as well? I'm very hopeful. I'm very, very hopeful. There is an opportunity to hit reset and start sprinting. And if this administration is able to do so, we're going to be much better off. So, Alyssa, you mentioned that you have hundreds of employees in, in nine states, I believe. Um, are, mm-hmm. What's the, the portion of them that have been vaccinated thus far? Because these are frontline workers. It's an excellent question. We have about 23% that have been vaccinated to date, and there's a huge push wow. going now. How you know, I, yeah. tw- I, was th- I was expecting 75 80%. I know. 23%, that's a really is, small number. Listen, here, I got an email this morning at one of our biggest facilities where one of our frustrated team members on the COVID listserv said, I'm registered, what I articulated earlier. I'm registered, I have, I'm credentialed, and they don't have me in the third vaccine database. And so this whole notion, it's very frustrating. Yes, not for lack of desire. It's, it's, we've got to cut through the red tape. Yeah, all right. Um, 
So if we can cut through the red, t- I mean, so, okay, so how do you see this playing out? I mean, I'm just, Tim and I constantly are like, all right, so when do we get back to normal? Whenever we're talking to mm-hmm. somebody who's a healthcare professional or head of a company like you are that are, are seeing everything play out firsthand, um, what's your expectations based on what we're seeing so far? What's your expectation if things can dramatically change in a positive way? If things can dramatically change in a positive way, I see 75 and up having their second shot by President's Day. I'm hopeful that teachers and other essential frontline workers, such as grocery uh, store workers, et cetera, will be having their first, if not second, vaccine by the end of Q1, by the end of March. And I'm really hopeful that Tier 2 and Tier 3, uh, let alone Tier 4, like healthy people in their 30s and 40s, can start getting vaccinated and complete that by April, May, June, and we can get back to normal come July, August. The scientists are so brilliant in this country, and we have just done such an extraordinary job coming with a protein-based solve in this particular vaccine that I am actually cautiously optimistic. That was one of our go-to voices when it comes to COVID-19. Surgical Solutions CEO Alyssa Rapp. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up next. It's, it's been pretty challenging. The story of how COVID is pushing a city block to the brink. This is an interesting story that was in Bloomberg Business Week magazine. We're going to take you through a must-read story. It's from our One Year, One Neighborhood series. That's coming up next, Tim. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Hard to say what the year ahead holds for the real estate industry and the many businesses that occupy the commercial real estate landscape. But I will say, Tim, this is one of the things that we have consistently and constantly talked about, stories across the Bloomberg every day about what the future is of commercial and residential real estate. Yeah, there are a lot of unknowns. And if we think back to what happened in 2020, it was a real surprise to see residential real estate bounce back so quickly in some areas of the country and be left behind in, in other areas. So far, the pandemic hasn't triggered a real estate meltdown on Main Street. But as Business Week uncovered, time is running out for one Seattle landlord and her tenants. Yeah, Tim, it's a personal story that's being told over and over again, Tim, around the country because of the pandemic. And we got more from the writer of it, Bloomberg News finance reporter Noah Buhire. He joined us along with the Seattle landlord he wrote about, Liz Dunn. She's founder of Dunn & Hobbs. It's a small business. And both were in Seattle. Noah starts off by talking about how he connected with the subject of the story. Liz and I actually started chatting several months ago. Um, I think it was in April or May of last year. Um, for a project that I'm doing for Business Week um, following small businesses in one neighborhood uh, here in Seattle through the COVID crisis. And um, over the months, uh, in in several conversations with Liz, I was just struck by all of the sort of financial um, and business bonds that she had created and developing this really... uh, several properties on this really cool block in Seattle, just how, how COVID was, was really putting a lot of those relationships under strain. And what I wanted to do was tell a story about real estate and small business and all of these links between people and how they got through the first 10 months of the pandemic and what it might take to get them through the next 10. So Liz, come on in on this. First of all, how's your year been? <laughs> oh, Carol. Um, <laughs> It's it's been pretty challenging. I've yeah. been doing small scale real estate for about twenty years, and I've survived through a couple of previous uh, crises with nine eleven, and then you know the economic meltdown that started in two thousand and eight. But uh, boy, this this takes the cake for sure. 
Well, and to be fair, and what's interesting, and it's one of the things we've talked about a lot, Liz, is, you know, companies, big and small, had to learn to pivot. Like, I feel like I've used that word a million times over the past 12 months. You did as well. And you had some things going for you in terms of, you know, where your real estate was located, what kind of tenants you had. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I kind of operate at a scale that um, really caters to locally owned small business. And so I love to renovate old buildings and then cram a bunch of smaller users um, kind of into one project where um, it can create a real critical mass um, of, of um, you know, interest in terms of retail and restaurants for the for the customers. And we're in a really great neighborhood called Capitol Hill. It's kind of the, you know, the cool, funky, alternative neighborhood in Seattle. And, and um, but, you know, the, the problem is that these small family-owned businesses are, um, super vulnerable, and as Noah and I discussed, of my twenty-some customer-facing businesses on this one block, you know, they were all impacted in various ways by by shutdowns um, or other aspects of the pandemic. So, Noah, as you were doing your reporting and talking with Liz and and unfolding this story, what struck you? Well, a couple of things. One is is just how um, how much the businesses that are tenants at Liz Property were able to pivot and just sort of do what they could to keep revenue in the door. Another thing was just Liz's willingness to, to do whatever she could to keep them afloat. So uh, what that meant a lot last year was Liz had to go out and negotiate with, with her banks, the, the folks who have mortgages on her property, and get some sort of relief there so she could turn around and pass um, – basically give her tenants some wiggle room. Um, and, and I think that's like a hugely important and underappreciated uh, aspect of what's been going on here. And, you know, from the outset of this crisis, uh, you know, I spoke with one of uh, Liz's lenders, um, the CEO of Home Street Bank, uh, which is a, a, a regional bank here in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And that, their willingness to work with Liz over the last couple months has just been huge. But I think Liz and uh, Home Street also thought that this pandemic would be over by now. A lot of us did. Yes. And so really the point we're at in this crisis now is right. everyone's having to come back to the table now and figure out what makes sense uh, for the next several months. What's interesting too, and there's a stat, Noah, that jumped out at me about the strain that we're seeing in terms of you know, U.S. retail landlords, we've talked a lot about this on air, counting more than $50 billion in missed rent payments last year, according to estimates from CoStar. Um, and some of those maybe will never get paid, but we've been watching so closely, Noah, the real estate market for looking for signs of strain. And it's big players, smaller players, but we've been watching it very closely, especially as we increasingly see in our communities. We see it in New York City. A lot of retail restaurants, they're not there anymore, and they're just boarded up, and they're empty places. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what's interesting about Liz's property um, properties is, is, is the resilience. I mean, there's been a lot of work that has gone in to keep those businesses afloat. And, um, you know, another thing that should be noted is that the, the block where these properties are was, was just really steps from where a lot of the racial justice protests were um, in, in Seattle. And um, there were periods over the last year where um, these businesses had to board up. But, um, you know, I think Liz worked with her tenants. She could 
say more about this, I'm sure, to just sort of make make it clear that, you know, they were open and functioning to the best of their ability. So, Liz, how crazy was it? Because it sounds like there were a lot of things that made survival possible. It was government programs. It was bank forbearance. Um, there's a lot of things. I mean, just what was it like, you know, in terms of finding the pieces to kind of keep it going? Well, I think you're right. It was a jigsaw puzzle, and it continues to be a jigsaw puzzle. And, you know, that's why I really appreciate Noah telling this story, because I think the plight of the mom and pop landlord, um, I think that story is not really getting told as much as it should. But, um, yeah, our, our tenants, we helped all of our tenants connect with banks if they didn't have one so they could apply for the PPP resources. We are once again with this round coaching them and and connecting them um, if they don't have those relationships. Um, The protest zone was half a block from us and that made the months of June and July um, really difficult. There was a a swarm of bicycle cops that um, uh, rode around our block because our area has kind of become a flashpoint for um, uh, protests on, on on various issues, and so that that kind of continues. But you know, I'm so lucky to have relationships with local banks, and that was intentional after the last downturn when I mm. realized that these big national banks, uh, you know, they, they're they're paying no attention to the plight of one little landlord in Seattle. Um, now I only deal with local banks where I, I literally, if I needed to, could walk into the office of the well, president. You know, that is such an important story. It's something actually my husband and I were talking about, the importance of like local community banks. Um, Noah, we've talked about this, you know, the big banks. There's been a lot of pressure even since, of course, the financial crisis to, you know, work within the smaller business community, um, think about kind of neighborhoods, and there's been a lot of pressure on them, but we've realized how important it is, these local community banks in terms of the relationships and understanding their communities and the needs of them. Yeah, I think I think that's a good point and something that's very salient and, and Liz's story is I mean, really what we're talking about is the difference between what what kind of what the city, what any city really looks like um, after we're through this pandemic, mm-hmm. uh, it, it's as Liz said, a jig, it's been a jigsaw puzzle, and putting together all the pieces in a way that the world resembles something like what it was before the pandemic just requires a lot of action uh, from a lot of different people. And um, you know, community bankers tend to have their finger on the pulse of what's going on in their backyard, and you know, uh, the loans that Liz has, they probably, you know, would be a complete rounding error for a large national bank, but they're not trivial for, for a smaller bank. So um, I, I just, I, I, my reporting, you know, I, I, what I gathered was there was a lot more willingness to sort of look at the totality of the situation and try and imagine a way to get through this together. I, I, what's interesting about Mark is that he helped turn around Home Street after the last um, uh, recession. Uh, he came in, I, I want to say, 2010, um, maybe 2009. Mm-hmm. And Another really, tough time. What he, <laughs> yeah, what, what he explained to me is that this, this, uh, 
this moment is fundamentally different. Yeah, really wide-ranging story there. It incorporates, Carol, so much of what we continue to discuss on the show. The pandemic, of course, real estate and mm -hmm. the implications for business. That was Bloomberg News finance reporter Noah Buhire, who joined us along with the Seattle landlord. He wrote about Liz Dunn. She's the founder of Dunn & Hobbs. Gotta say, I love the personal stories. It really gives you some insight into what's going on. That wraps up our first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovec. More ahead in our next hour, including... From cannabis and coals to Hollywood's pay model and Peloton. More from the year ahead and the consumer companies to watch. You love your Peloton, Carol. Plus, <laughs> the maker of Folgers and Jif Peanut Butter on innovating at a nearly 125-year-old company. We hear from Smucker president and CEO Mark Smucker. Can I just say, the new president loves his Peloton, too. Also, <laughs> guess who people around the globe trust the most? That from the head of the global communications firm, Edelman. And the co-founder and CEO of Twilio, Jeff Lawson, on a spectacular year and his new book, Ask Your Developer. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovic of Bloomberg Quick Take. Plenty ahead in our second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, including more from the magazine's Year Ahead issue. Plus, a fifth generation smucker running the company. What innovation and culture mean at a nearly 125 year old brand? Gotta love your GIF. Also, government or business, which one do people trust the most? The head of Edelman on the latest trust barometer. And Twilio has been on a tear. Co-founder and CEO Jeff Lawson explains why and how to harness the power of software developers and win in the 21st century. That in his latest book. All of that to come. We begin, though, with the year ahead. As we mentioned, the magazine is all about what's to come and look out for in 2021. Teeing up our Bloomberg Live event this coming week by the same name. Jim Ellis, though, Bloomberg Businessweek Assistant Managing Editor, editor of the business section of the magazine, caught up with Tim and me to talk about some of the consumer companies and stories to watch. Check it out. Well, I tried to think about what are the, um, you know, sort of what's the range of companies and industries that have been sort of uh, hit hard in 2020, or that were hit hard in 2020 uh, in the consumer sector. And, um, you know, how is 2021 going to be different from them? Obviously, a lot of the, the, that plays into how the uh, pandemic affected companies. And that's a range of companies, whether it was, um, um, you know, uh, going from you know, consumer, the traditional consumer retailing, but also looking at the sort of people who benefited from those, uh, you know, some from the pandemic in a way, you know, things like, uh, you know, Peloton at home sort of companies, delivery companies, um, all the way to companies that, you know, now have to look at ways that their business may be permanently changed, such as retailers who suddenly have discovered that things like the delivery, things like, um, you know, um, you know, omni-channel, in other words, having a big online business is suddenly important as well. So we were trying to say, what does 2021 really mean? Right. And in a lot of ways, you can't talk about that without looking at how 2020 changed them. Yeah, 2020, uh, look, uh, affected each company that you look at very differently in this issue and the industry is differently. I want to start with, with drugstores because there's this fascinating story in here about how drugstores could be pivotal in mass vaccinations. Um, as you explore they could be the heroes of 2021 right jim indeed i mean the thing is that we've all know about the bumpy rollout of the vaccine so far obviously it's only been weeks but um you know to meet the kind of uh deadlines that the new administration would like to see 
you know, uh, 100 million vaccines in 100 days. That's that's going to require a lot more than the sort of spotty effort we've seen so far. Enter America's drugstores. There are about 60,000 pharmacies right now spread across the U.S. That's a lot of, uh, you know, places that are very close to, you know, the homes of uh, most Americans. The thing that really works in their favor is that a lot of them already have very sort of rich databases of people who shop at their stores, who already get their health care, you know, needs met at their stores through their pharmacies. Um, you know, and, and more importantly, they have experience giving vaccines. I mean, pharmacies in the U.S. last year gave about a third of all the adult mm. flu shots that were given. Right. That's a huge number. I mean, this is this is these aren't people who are suddenly having to learn how to do this. The issue is that they just have to be brought into the system to do it. Hey, listen, and, you know, listen, it's where I go for vaccines at this point. It's pretty easy, uh, breezy for uh, me to do that. One thing uh, we all were doing, you mentioned it, Peloton. That was one of the huge stories of 2021. Full transparency, I have one at home, but they just took (laughs) off like a rocket. And I think the question is, what's the longer term durability for this company, right? Yeah, I mean the, the the issue with Peloton. What I was uh, sort of what attracted me to that was it's the ultimate uh, pandemic play. Mm-hmm. It is a company that um, depends on you staying at home, doing something that typically you do in groups inside you know studios or gyms. And um, you know a lot of people a year ago thought that this was uh, a small thing that was not going to take off. What I, what interested me was that um, you know one um, short seller last year had said, "Oh, this is a." a company that isn't going that isn't going to do much it's worth about one and a half billion if you looked last week you saw that it has almost a 50 billion dollar market wow. cap now Unbelievable. and that's because so many people have been driven to it it now has uh what 3.6 million members it um you know is working it had 90 million workouts in the three months ended in September. It's amazing. And its busiest day was Thanksgiving. It did 50,000 people wow. were on doing classes in that single day. <laughs> this thing has taken off like a rocket. And the thing is, though, that once you've made this huge investment in a piece of equipment, and once you've gotten into this notion that this is a community of other people right. that you can connect with digitally, that that actually gets sort of sticky. That's, so right. in a way, they're trying to get the sort of feel of community that you get inside a you know a classroom structure within a gym or, or you know, and and right. take that into the home. They've been I, successful with it so far. I wouldn't count them out. And I said durability, and I, wrong word because they're pretty durable. I got to say that bikes, but the longevity <laughs> of it is in question. Hey, and Joe Biden likes it um, as well. Uh, just quickly, um, Hollywood getting a new pay model. Um, that's another big okay. thing. That's another thing. I mean, streaming this year was a major, major change in the way that people got entertainment. Um, typically, with movies, movies go out, they, they have theatrical release, and depending on the length of the theatrical release, um, you know, a lot of times that meant, made a blockbuster, and a lot of the, 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 the people in the trade are paid based on how much came out of a theatrical release, but they also get things like residuals and pieces of the profit for the after part of that. It goes to home video, you get a piece of that. It goes onto a TV network, you get a piece of that. People were getting checks for years. I mean, the big example is Michael, uh, excuse me, the big example would be Robert Downey Jr., mm. who earned what we think is $75 million from his, <sighs> his salary and his share of profits just on Avengers Endgame. 
That's the wow. positive of this. But a lot of people lose right. lots of money in the movie business. That was Jim Ellis, Bloomberg Business Week, assistant managing editor and editor of the business section of the magazine. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week coming up. Speaking of consumer companies to watch. We hear from the CEO of one company that has been around for more than a century and transforming itself to stay around for a hundred more years. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. The year ahead for many companies, Tim, we know means continuing to innovate, sell off underperforming in non-core assets, move faster. We've heard a lot of that in the past year. With that in mind, this week at a Bloomberg Breakaway Town Hall, I talked about just that with one company that is laser-focused on innovation and its culture. Yeah, Carol, you caught up with the president and CEO of the JM Smucker Company, Mark Smucker, a fifth-generation member of the Smucker family who's running the company, which is nearly in its 125th year. Wow. That is a lot of years of peanut butter and jelly. And Folgers, I'm just going to say, put it out there. We talked about a lot, kicked it off as we do with many of our conversations today, talking about the impact of the coronavirus. We can't diminish the significance of this humanitarian crisis that we all find ourselves in. But I think we do have to try to look forward to the future and think about how are we as a company helping society? How are we making society a better place? We obviously make food. We make things that are, uh, you know, make the consumer happy, but we also have a responsibility to the communities in which we work as well. So all of the ways that we can support them through volunteerism, obviously, um, education, uh, feeding America, all of those things, it is a it is a dual role that we have in society today. Is it safe to say a stressful one? Because I'm curious about what your employees might be asking of you today and what you're asking of your leadership to kind of get everyone through this environment. Well, the first thing that we're asking our leadership is to, number one, focus, but also in focusing, we have to take care of our employees. And that starts with uh, mental health. We have made a significant push with our employees to make sure that they know what resources are available to them. It is a trying time, but fundamentally, we have to start with keeping our own house in order, protecting our employees, which will in turn allow us to do better in business. Well, it's interesting too, you know, you say to do better in business. Business right now, I was talking to Richard Edelman of the PR firm Edelman, and they do a trust barometer. And they say that right now, business was more trusted than government in 18 of 27 countries. And the expectations are for CEOs to focus on societal engagement with the same rigor, thoughtfulness, and energy used to deliver on profits. And I'm curious, do you... Are you seeing that? Do you see that now as kind of extra responsibilities in your role? As a company, Carol, we always have taken a view, again, that that we do have a responsibility to society. I think what has shifted in the last five to 10 years is you do see business leaders being more vocal and taking stances, not necessarily political stances, but Fundamentally, it's about doing what's right. And so what, even if we choose not to make a statement publicly, even internally with 7,000 employees, there is an expectation that we stand up for what is right, whether that's condemning violence in any form or 
what have you. But we, we do see a desire from employees and the society at large to, to be a bit more vocal on those issues. Well, it's interesting, too, this whole focus, Mark, you know this, of multiple stakeholders, right? It's something that's come out, come out of the business roundtable. Your history, and help me if I've gotten the, the uh, genealogy right, I think your grandfather and former CEO of the company, Paul Smucker, wrote a letter back in the 1980s. And then I think it's your great-great-grandfather, J.M. Smucker, you know, laid out these core values, these basic beliefs, you know, about ethics and quality and people. And it's just pretty fascinating that it feels like the company in many ways was ahead of its time considering the environment we're now in. And now all of a sudden everyone's talking about this. You know, it's really interesting. You said it very well. We have been focused on this for decades, for our entire existence. Even when the before the business roundtable came out, we talk about our constituencies, right? And the employees, consumers, customers, suppliers, all of them leading to shareholders. And so philosophically, what we have always said is that if we take care of all of the other constituents, then automatically the shareholder will be taken care of. And that is essentially precisely what the business roundtable said. There's no question that social media and technology has allowed consumers access to a variety of different brands and products that they may not have had access to in the past. And so in this time, when consumers do want to simplify, we have seen millions of consumers come back to the Folgers franchise. And we have actually seen Folgers start growing again, which has been fantastic. We're helping that along with, again, the advertising and so forth. But specifically to innovation, it's making sure that we continue to stay relevant we are on a multi-year journey with Folgers, which starts with the consumer communication. Um, consumers want bolder, darker roasts. So we are providing those in a new product line called Folgers Noir. It's constantly paying attention and speaking to our consumers and understanding what they want so that we can deliver that to them. And I'm very what? pleased with the progress we've made. So more to come. You mentioned advertising a couple of times. I'm curious about social. How important is that in kind of reaching a different audience, maybe a younger audience? Um, and I'm also curious about influencers or celebrities. Like, how do you guys think about that? You know, take a, you know, a Coke or a Pepsi, right? They've often aligned with a celebrity. Take, you know, sports, you know, gear. Um, so I'm just curious how that plays into it. Sure. So Folgers uh, in particular, as it relates to, um, influencers and, and social, across our portfolio, we have leveraged those capabilities. Keeping these consumers in the franchise is largely about targeting. It's knowing which consumers are new and trying to push, push messaging to them through the social channels. Um, in terms of celebrities, as you know, we are engaged with Rachel Ray on Nutrish, which is our, our one of our mm -hmm. leading dog food brands. Um, that has been a very successful partnership uh, with for us. We also do think about uh, whether it's influencers or celebrities. Obviously, maybe our pockets aren't as deep as some of our larger competitors, but we will continue to look at those opportunities as well. 
You know, as we hear from a lot of leaders, change truly does start from the top down. The J.M. Smucker Company president and CEO, Mark Smucker. You can listen to that full conversation where he talked about everything from the revival of Folgers to celebrity influencers. That's our Bloomberg Business Week extra podcast this week. Could a Kim Kardashian be coming to Folgers? Ooh, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just guessing. No, <laughs> this isn't a newsflash. All right. Find that on our podcast feed. Still to come on Bloomberg Business Week. Company culture and innovation. Yep, they're important. And so, too, is trust, Carol. When it comes to that, which one fares better, business or government? The most important uh, finding in the Edelman Trust Barometer this year is that... We've got more on that with the CEO of Edelman. That's coming up next. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. I know I've said this already a million times on this broadcast, but it is still really hard to say, Tim, how this year is going to play out with so many factors like the virus, the vaccine, the economy, all still unclear. So many unknowns here. And Mm -hmm. and one thing is clear, Carol, at least according to the latest trust barometer from the global communications firm Edelman, and that is when it comes to trust in government and business, there's one that really comes out ahead. Yep. We got more on that from the founder and CEO of the global communications firm Edelman, Richard Edelman. He was back with us. He's someone in constant contact with corporate leaders. He's also someone who's constantly tracking how the general public feels about the current environment, how they feel about politics, how they feel about business. Look, I think the most important uh, finding in the Edelman Trust Barometer this year is that business is the most trusted institution and that business is supposed to step into the void left by government. Last we talked, which was uh, about May, Mm -hmm. um, government had become the most trusted institution because it was wartime and we were doing lockdowns and big spend to keep uh, people afloat and, you know, being fired in the pandemic. And now we're in a different point. Leaders of government have deeply disappointed. We feel like we've been lied to. Um, There is no uh, really sign that the pandemic is ebbing. And um, and so it's been handed over to business to fix. And um, in particular, CEOs have to speak up and stand up and talk not just about uh, COVID, but about systemic racism and about uh, sustainability. And, um, you know, it's really adults in the room and whether it's jamie diamond or 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 uh scott kirby of united airlines everybody has to talk about how we're gonna get back to travel and how we get back to uh normal well so let's talk about as you say business leaders now the most trusted institution here uh and certainly not uh government leaders here and we have seen members of uh the business community backing off on political contributions you know being very outspoken about president trump uh, and what happened to the nation's capital. Where were they, though? Although I will say many members of the business community were pretty critical of President Trump as well through over, throughout the past four years. But I think some would say, well, why didn't, why didn't business leaders speak up even more um, strongly to say that these things weren't right early on? You know, it's, it's a new learned behavior for CEOs to be public figures. They're, they're normally, you know... <laughs> trying to serve Wall Street and serve their employees. And all of a sudden, um, with this leadership vacuum, we, we have a necessity of decency and of making sure... Carol, the biggest stat that's fascinating is mm. my employer is the most trusted institution, even 15 points higher than business in general. So, And it's my employer CEO who's trusted, and my employer um, media, in fact, is more trusted than mainstream media. So, therefore, people who are employees are looking desperately for quality information. 
And that's what we're lacking in society now. That's a new deal for companies. They're not used to being information purveyors. But that's the demand. That's the necessity well, right now. Richard, what? how did the pandemic help create that? Because I do feel like... You know, individuals, you know, who were able to keep their jobs and stay employed, like the lifeline and the communication between their employers, especially working from home, it had to change. Um, And I do wonder how the pandemic impacted the employer-employee relationship. It became, as you say, um, in a way, the normalizing force um, was the connection to the office, Um, even if you weren't in the office. And that you were getting better facts from the company about um, return to work or opportunity to get vaccinated from the company, not from the government. I mean, early on, the government did this well. Governor Cuomo, others, regular briefings, and then it dissipated over the summer, and it hasn't returned. And the magic cures, hydroxychloroquine, all that just deeply, deeply hurt any credibility that government leaders had. And Beyond that, the media has all of a sudden been categorized as politicized, biased, um, you know, people are in thought bubbles, and the media has been crippled as a source of information. So again, government and media typically in in a crisis period are the reliable sources. Not now. It's business's turn. Hey, I want to get back to your uh, Edelman Trust Barometer that you put out. Though, Richard, what I want to ask you, because you do, you're constantly talking with CEOs, from all different industries, what are the conversations you've been having? Well, one is about um, the position of America in the world. Um, our mm. trust barometer found that uh, the U.S. is actually third from the bottom in terms of how its own uh, residents feel about its institutions. So we're just ahead of Russia and Japan. Japan's still reeling from Fukushima and the nuclear accident in Russia, as it is. Um, and trust in brand America um, and trust in the American government has really eroded. It's only 40% globally, and it's just above China at 30%. You know, we're, we're, we're down there with Italy and Spain. We're not up there with Germany, Canada, et cetera. So that's a big concern. I'm also hearing from CEOs about um, how we're going to work with government. That's the founder and CEO of the global communications firm Edelman, Richard Edelman. And check out that full conversation. It's on our Bloomberg Business Week podcast feed. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, one of the 50 companies to watch in 2021. That's next. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio. So in the year ahead issue this week, we've got a list of the 50 companies to watch, which includes a stock that was one of last year's, Tim, high flyers. We're talking about Twilio, which Mm -hmm. saw its stock soar 244% last year amid a time of robust demand for its communication software. Sales, Carol, up 52% for the most recent quarter. Blockbuster year, no doubt. I caught up with Jeff Lawson. He's chairman, CEO, and co-founder of Twilio. He's also got a new book out, Ask Your Developer How to Harness the Power of Software Developers and Win in the 21st Century. We talked about the year that was and the year ahead. Really excited to get this book out there because I started writing this book about the power of software developers and of innovation and the power that software is playing in so many businesses and so many industries. Started writing this book actually you know, before COVID and I think the last year has just shown 
even more so how important digital innovation, digital communications, but um, agility essentially in business is when factors outside of our control are changing constantly. Well, I think that is spot on. Um, And I want to dig into the book specifically, but I do want to ask you about this past year. Uh, Like some companies, your business, uh, Twilio, benefited as we were all working from home and companies needed more than ever before really to communicate with their customers and they needed, you know, your infrastructure infrastructure software. Um, What was the year like for you? How would you sum it up? And when did you all of a sudden see that it was going to turn out to be a strong year for you financially? Well, you know, Twilio's product, we are a platform that enables companies who are building things in software to be able to communicate digitally using digital communication channels like voice, text messaging, chat, video, email, and more. And so, you know, what we have always provided to the world, even before COVID, was first digital customer engagement, the ability to connect people together using digital technologies. Number two, software agility, because we enable software developers to build communications into all the apps and experiences that we have every day. And third is cloud scale. When somebody builds something on Twilio, it just works everywhere in the world. It works at any scale. You don't have to worry about racking and stacking servers and all this kind of stuff. And that's why many of the best companies in the world have been using Twilio to build these amazing customer experiences, you know, like Uber and Lyft and Shopify and amazing companies that are leading the edge. Which are the companies companies. we know about, right, as consumers, but we don't understand kind of how it all works or how it gets to us. Exactly. Twilio is behind the scenes. If you think about those three things that I just mentioned, like digital engagement, uh, cloud scale, and software agility, well, the world needed those even more in 2020 because as we had to reconfigure our world to get rid of human-to-human, face-to-face interactions, replace them with digital equivalents, and uh, we needed to re a factor the whole world in real time with these changing conditions while the things that Twilio brought to our customers was incredibly valuable. Were you surprised though at at how strong the demand ultimately and how it played out for you guys? You know, not really. Um, I had an early sense, I'll tell you, that when the the pandemic began Mm -hmm. um, in, you know, early to mid-March of last year, we saw a, a really quick influx of customers all realizing that they needed to build. You know, they were saying, it's time to build. Like, we've never dealt with a global pandemic before. We need to reinvent our customer experience. We need to do contactless delivery. We need to accelerate our online ordering abilities. We need to see patients remotely for for telehealth. Like, there were all these use cases coming to prominence that in a very, like, in the course of a week, so many customers reaching out and saying, our roadmap has changed. Our priorities all just changed. And Twilio is going to be a big part of how we're going to respond to the pandemic. And so I think we got a pretty early view into the importance of it. That's why we leaned in. We said, we're here to serve our customers during this time, to make them successful right. through the pandemic and build even tighter customer relationships during this period of time that's going to be so stressful for our customers and for the world. Jeff, I want to talk more about the book. I do want to ask you, what does 2021 look like for you guys in terms of, and what kind of visibility? Well, we see 2020 as having been an acceleration of the trends that have long gone on, of the world moving to digital, of every industry becoming a software industry, and every company having to really uh, up their digital game. And 2020, the pandemic accelerated those plans. Oftentimes in companies, by six years, their roadmaps got accelerated. But 2021 is going to be no different. That acceleration is a one-way path. And every industry and every company who expects to win in this digital economy is going to have to keep up the pace of invention and agility and using software to serve their customers. And so I think we're going to continue to uh, help companies unlock these amazing digital experiences. 
Forgive me, Jeff, and we love talking with you because you got to go a lot of places with us. But if I'm not a person who's into software, am I going to be like, okay, why do I need to read this book? And it sounds like we all need to read this book in terms of understanding, especially in an increasingly high tech world. You know, we've certainly seen that over the last year. Why did you write it? Who are you addressing? And what's the message you want to get out here? This book is written actually for people who aren't the developers and aren't the software people. It's written for the wide variety of business executives who know that software in many ways represents the future of their company because every company is in this Darwinian struggle to build great digital products and experiences to serve their customers in this era where the interface that we have with our customers is now oftentimes an app on a phone or a website. Therefore, it's the company's that build great software experiences, those are the companies who win the hearts and minds and wallets of their customers. And so, so much has been said about this, you know, the software is eating the world and so many industries have been challenged by the nature of software and how software is changing those industries. But not a lot has been said about how the business people who aren't software developers, who aren't technologists, how do they partner with the technical talent in their company or the technical talent they want to bring into their company to actually successfully build those great digital products and experiences. Because at the end of the day, the technical people and the business executives are all aligned in what they want. They want to build amazing products and experiences that millions or even billions of customers are going to love that will drive business growth. Yet oftentimes there's this invisible divide between the business executives and the technical talent because they speak different languages. Right. And the interesting thing is that I'm a CEO of a public company. I'm also a software developer. So I have a foot in both of these worlds. Mm-hmm. And so I wrote the book to try to build that bridge, to talk to business executives and tell them what goes on in the world of software and what their developers are actually doing and how they can work with those developers to unlock innovation and build great software that will differentiate their company in the eyes of their customers, because that is how you win in this digital right. economy. Well, and I feel like in many ways, it's like after the, the financial crisis, um, we looked at CFOs very differently because CFOs had to figure out financially how to get their companies through a really difficult crisis. And it wasn't just, you know, accounting guys, you know, checking out the numbers. They became really key and, you know, and and strategical Strategic, to yeah. companies. And I feel like that's what we see now with CTOs and IT departments increasingly. It's not just like, hey, I need a new mouse pad. You know, it's a lot more strategic, um, you know, especially as almost every company has become a tech company. Well, first, I do need a new mouse pad. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'll get, I'll get the, right uh, on it. You're absolutely right. <laughs> 20 years ago, you're right. IP was a cost center. It was about, you know, laptops for the employees and printers and, uh, you know, maybe, uh, uh, you know, the financial system that customers never knew about or cared about. But nowadays, when companies, their interface with their customers is a digital one, customers suddenly care about the quality of your software. Are you using software to differentiate? So software has moved from the back office and the cost center to the uh, revenue driver of so many companies. And it actually is something that customers care about. Think about your bank. You know, it used to be that your bank was a bricks and mortar store that you walked into. And if it was well decorated, well lit, the teller was friendly and they gave your kid a lollipop, you'd say, well, I like my bank. Nowadays, your bank is a software app on your phone. And you like your bank if the app is fast, if it doesn't crash, and if it makes your life easier. And the act of achieving those things is really the act of companies listening to their customers and answering the problems that their customers need solved with all that software. And that's fundamentally an act of building 
And that's why so many Silicon Valley companies who oftentimes hire developers as the first thing they do, that's why they end up challenging so many different industries. But mm. every company is starting well, to adopt that methodology if they want to compete and win in this era. And that's what this book is really about. It's a playbook for how to do that. Well, and your customer lineup, whether it's Uber, or WhatsApp, whether it's Lyft, whether it's Nordstrom, whether it's Nike, I mean, you really kind of look into so many different areas of the corporate world based on what you're seeing from some of your customers and where they're spending money. What does it tell you maybe about our environment, our broader market environment? Well, I think that it's it's just it's just a truism that in the digital economy, the companies with the best uh, digital experiences are going to win the hearts, minds, and wallets of customers. It's and as simple it's, as that, right? Every company. Yeah, and I, and I look at you know it's not just about the the startups and it's not just about certain companies. It's really every company. In the book, I talk about the story about Domino's Pizza, actually, mm-hmm. which has been a huge like look at their stock price over the last decade. It's an amazing story of a company that transformed from a pizza company to a technology company. Well, there you have it. Twilio chairman, CEO, and co-founder Jeff Lawson. His book, Ask Your Developer, How to Harness the Power of Software Developers and Win in the 21st Century. And be sure to check out the full list of 50 companies to watch in 2021. That's in the magazine, online, and on the Bloomberg. And Tim, that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Tim Stenovec. Be sure to tune into our Bloomberg Business Week daily show Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio. You can also watch our daily broadcast on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News. And check out, too, our Bloomberg Business Week podcast. Find that at Bloomberg.com, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. And that's where you'll also find our extra podcast. This week, we'll hear more of that conversation with Jam Smucker, company president and CEO Mark Smucker, fifth generation of the family running the company known for those iconic brands and one that's made it through war, segregation, the financial crisis, and now the pandemic. And you can also see me on Bloomberg Quick Take, available on Bloomberg.com slash QT and streaming platforms like Roku, Apple TV, Samsung TV, and more. You can find us everywhere. Also, don't forget Bloomberg Business Week. We're available on newsstands now at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal. Head there for more of the year-ahead stories in economics, politics, batteries, yes, batteries, technology, finance, and luxury. It's an incredible issue. Have a great weekend, everyone. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.